Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti. Today, I will be talking to Professor François-Xavier Fauvel about his book, The Golden Rhinoceros, Histories of the African Middle Ages. The Golden Rhinoceros was published in English translation in 2018 by Princeton University Press, although the French version was published in 2013. Both of these are prize-winning books. The French version won the Grand Prix de Rendezvous de l'Histoire, which recognizes a French language book that has contributed significantly to advancing historical knowledge for the greater public. And the English version won the Medieval Book of the Year Award in 2018. A few words about our guest. Francois Xavier is a historian and archeologist of Africa. He holds the first permanent chair in African history at the prestigious Collège de France, for which he delivered his inaugural lecture in October 2019. In addition to his position at the Collège, François Xavier is based at the Trace Laboratory at the University Toulouse Jean Jaurès. His research interests are unusually wide-ranging. He has conducted extensive fieldwork in South Africa, Ethiopia, and Morocco, and published on many periods of African history, from the ancient to the contemporary, to, as we will be discussing today, the African Middle Ages. François Xavier, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Elisa. So why don't we begin by introducing yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little about yourself. How did you become a historian of Africa? Well, that's a, that's a long story. And um, I started actually by doing um, uh, studies in philosophy. And I started a, a, a um, university as a as a as a as a student in philosophy, I even went as far as starting a PhD dissertation, which I stopped after a year, and then after a couple of uh, years, I eventually man- found that I was interested in 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 Africa, in, in history, in archaeology, but all these things did not reconcile well in the sense that I did, I, I, there was no place where I could basically do in France um, uh, archaeology related to Africa and history, etc. So I, I started um, uh, a new um, uh, master thesis and then a PhD uh, dissertation in African history, modern African history at the University of Sorbonne. And um, it was on the on the representation of the of the Khoisan people in Western literature in Portuguese, Dutch, French, English from the 15th to the 19th century. And um, meanwhile, I did my first uh, field missions in Southern Africa, and I became more and more interested in uh, ancient um, uh, African history. I mean, uh, what I mean, the African history before there were a lot of um, uh, written sources in Western um, uh, languages. And then, guided by this uh, uh, frustration about modern history, I became more and more interested into more ancient African history. That's how I became, um, uh, I trained as an archaeologist on different uh, fields with different people, with different team. And, um, and, uh, and then I accepted the position of director of the French uh, Center for Ethiopian Studies in Addis Ababa, where I lived um, three years. And, and then I moved from there to other places. I, 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 I directed excavations in Morocco, um, uh, etc. And so step by step, guided by uh, frustration about what I was uh, doing, and uh, I, I eventually um, uh, created my own way, if I, if I can say this, you know, in, in, and, 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 and became a historian of ancient Africa and at the same time an archaeologist. 
Well, I think it's certainly very comforting for everyone out there to know that uh, it takes a few tries to really find your way. But certainly yes. this book has... And failures, and, fa and many failures. <laughs> but uh, it's a story, as you... Yeah, it's a story of, um, of opportunities and failures and step-by-step I eventually managed to construct something. So it's, it was not a given from the start, for, for sure. Yeah, it's a story of research, you know, being driven by a question. Absolutely. So this book, The Golden Rhinoceros, African Middle Ages, you begin by kind of bringing to us, the reader, this paradox about this period, the African Middle Ages. And, and this paradox you say is one in which we have a golden age in Africa, literally and figuratively. And you ask, how could this period that is so radiant be obscured so much in the surviving documentation? This paradox of radiance and yet this lack of documentation, which is the question that drove you um, to, to, to get to this, to this project. So I wonder if you could kind of unravel for us more with a little bit more detail this paradox between the golden age and yet our lack of knowledge about this golden age. Yeah, it is true that um, Africa and uh, different regions of, of Africa uh, participated uh, to this global phenomenon that, that, can be, that can be labeled the Middle Ages. And that's how I frame my perception of um, uh, the, 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 the place of Africa uh, during, the, during the Middle Ages. In other words, you know, there is no reason why the, the word um, Middle Ages should uh, belong to, um, uh, to, 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 uh, to Europe or to any other part of the, of the world. I tend to see the Middle Ages as a global process of a certain type of interconnections with, 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 between different regions, the, a, a certain type of, um, a certain um, uh, um, role of, uh, of, of, um, of merchants um, in, um, in, in, in interconnecting these, um, uh, these regions, the role of, um, of the Islamic world as an interface, um, uh, as a, as a, as a Political and economical platform of um, uh, between uh, between different the different provinces of the of the medieval world, and um, and uh, and that's and, and that's and that's the framework behind um, uh, the, the 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 way how I conceived the golden um, uh, the golden Renaissance. So for me, there is there is no doubt about it. And Africa and Africa's I should say uh, different regions of Africa participated in this, um, uh, in this global uh, process. But now you're right. The question is, why is it that um, um, we don't know much about it? And uh, there are several reasons for this. I mean, one is an ideological one. I mean, there, is a, there is a lack, there is a lack of, there is generally speaking, a lack of knowledge about ancient Africa. And um, not that there is no, not that there are no sources, but because there is a lack of interest <laughs> in, in, the, in the public or in the, in the, in the funding institutions or in the higher education institutions, etc., about, um, about uh, ancient uh, Africa in, the, in general. But also, there is also a certain regime, regimen of documentation. And um, which I think is a, is a, is a, is a specificity of, um, of African history. In many cases, we don't have written sources produced by the very societies we are talking about. And so if one compares with Europe, Christian Latin Europe, which produced um, its own um, written sources, uh, most historians worked, work on these written sources and when they need, they can add up to these written sources produced by Western Christian Latin um, uh, societies, other kind of sources, such as uh, 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 external written sources or archaeology, etc. But the main body of knowledge and, uh, and, and scholarship created about Europe is based on sources produced by European um, uh, societies. This is not the case 
in, in Africa, except in a few exceptions like Ethiopia. But uh, for most of the societies we are talking about, for instance, Mali in the 14th century or Zimbabwe in the 14th century or, 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 the, or the kingdom of Canem in the 11th century or the kingdom of Ghana in the, in the, in the 11th century, uh, we, do, we don't have sources written by from the inside of these um, uh, societies. And that, make, that makes a big difference. That makes a big uh, documentary difference, but that makes also a big narrative um, uh, difference. And these documentary gaps and narrative discontinuity, we have to fill, we have to, we have to correct, and we have to reconstruct um, uh, um, uh, a narrative. How do we do this? We do this with um, piecemeal of other um, uh, documents, which can be uh, written sources produced from the outside by visitors or by diplomats. We can fill this up or, or, um, or, or correct this, um, uh, this, this gap by uh, archaeology, by, um, by, by findings, by objects in museums, uh, by uh, historical linguistics, by a number of, or sometimes by also a few um, uh, written documents that have survived, uh, uh, etc. So the only the only way the only possible way we can work on ancient African history is by uh, uh, putting together a number of highly heterogeneous um, uh, uh, pieces that do not fit well um, uh, uh, together, and we have to work with it. So some people might say. This is less than history. This is not real history. This is less interesting. For my part, I say, well, it's much more challenging. And so it is much more interesting. And in a way, it's, it's history par excellence. And that's why I like so much um, this, this, this job of African history. And that's, and that's also why so many people, so many uh, um, colleagues, not working on Africa, and uh, and and so many, so many, and and, and 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 such a large audience also like it. There is something like an investigation, you know, in in the in the past. And that's very much the approach that you take in this book. You really, you investigate with the full force of the skills you have as a historian, as an archaeologist even as a philosopher of history, to, to try to take objects or archaeological sites or written sources and to go into them layer by layer with us alongside for the ride to try to see what we can know. Yes, yes, absolutely. You're, you're, absolutely, you're right. And I mean, part of what I'm doing in these books is also to accept the 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 situation, the, the the particular discomfort of um, of being a historian of ancient Africa, and um, uh, and and to accept that what many people can perceive as um, as a liability, as something less than history, is actually exactly what history is, and um, uh, uh, and. Um, and what I like is that um, uh, uh, the problem of having few sources, the problem of having sources that, did, that do not reconcile well, um, the problem of having just tiny windows and not a continuous narrative, these problems become the very topic of the of the hist of the stories I want to uh, I want to uh, I want to tell. And to to further complicate this challenge, you say as you're laying out this this paradox of lack of documentation and yet this golden age, 
that it's not simply that we don't have um, written sources that are produced internal to the societies that we're interested in looking at. We're also coming off of several hundred years of what you call this, this coercion underneath the land, but also, of course, above the surface of the land with the history of of colonialism and also particularly its effects on material culture and material remains. Can, can you unpack that a little bit? Yes, yes, absolutely. And the, so many layers of time have accumulated between the ancient, the, the past of, of ancient African societies and, and today. Well, in a way it's true anywhere on earth. But it, it's all the more true in Africa, and um, uh, for different reasons. Because not only uh, did time pass, but also a number of erasing processed processes um, uh, took place. And of course, yes, colonialism was one of them, and uh, um, uh, looting um, uh, was uh, uh, and is um, uh, one of them. And um, uh, um, uh, 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 um, negation of the of the of 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 history is um, uh, is also um, uh, one of them, and there is a there is a process of there is a there is a there is a process of oblivion uh, that uh, that uh, that that compounds the problem of accessing the past in um, in, um, in 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 Africa, and uh, that makes. Things all the more complicated. I mean, it is it is it is fascinating and very frustrating that um, there are some 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 major sites are still missing, you know. And uh, I, I, I can give you the example of the of the of the of the once very famous capital of the kingdom of Mali in the 14th century. This is a place that was described by the famous historian Ibn Khaldun. Uh, it was described by the famous Mamluk chronicler Al-Umari. It was even described by the traveler who lived there okay, for eight to nine months, Ibn Battuta. But we don't know where this capital was. And how, how is it possible? I mean, can you imagine the capital of a, of a European kingdom that would disappear like this to the point that we don't know where it is okay and uh, and how can it disappear is it just that it was you know overflowed by a by a river or that it was uh, uh, you know, what 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 really happened or is it just that we don't know where to look at or what how can a major place like this just disappear of course it does not technically disappear it's just that we don't know where it is. We don't know how to look. We don't know to 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 to, to which source we should we should rely on, and um, uh, and um, uh, and. Uh, 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 but that I find this absolutely fascinating. That places belonging to times just separated from us by a few centuries can just disappear like this, and. Um, I could give you many, many, many examples of this. I can give you a, a, another example in Ethiopia, and um, with the capital of uh, Ifat, also a 14th to 15th century um, Muslim sultanate, um, that that had disappeared. And we were able, with colleagues of mine, ten years ago, to uh, discover uh, the capital of this um, of this um, uh, sultanate, and uh, it was in a in a it was in a region that uh, where actually no one could no one could 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 think that the capital would be there because it was just twenty kilometers from the from the Christian kingdom and uh, our first um, uh, reflex was to was to was to was to look far to the east you know hundreds of kilometers of, uh, afar and. Um, uh, uh, and 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 we visited there, and we found many other places of my of of minor interest, etc. But no capital. And then eventually, that's when we changed our mind, and um, and um, and we, and we visited other landscapes, and we were able to 
to find after a number of failures, we were able to find this, um, this, um, this capital of, um, of, um, of IFAD. But, uh, but in the case of the capital of Mali, been, no one has been able to, 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 to find where this capital was. So there are many places like this. There are many often names in uh, Arabic sources of the Middle Ages that we don't know where the, they were. These kind of mysteries I find absolutely fascinating, not, not, just, not, not because I am a romantic um, uh, archaeologist and, you know, kind of Indiana Jones would like to, would like to discover uh, uh, unknown places, but because um, it, um, it, it emphasizes the, 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 the very nature of um, the... the the regimen of documentation that the African past is, and the and the and the kind of investigation that our work work of uh, of of historian uh, consists um, uh, consists in. I find this uh, I find this um, uh, extremely interesting to to, um, uh, to to do, and if only because it's extremely um, uh, um, challenging. It is very. It, very very challenging intellectually and uh, and methodologi methodologically. Well, I I think in some ways that how challenging it is, it comes out of of course in some you know great tragedy and, but at the same time it it's very humbling, which is a is an important corrective to certain ways that history has been written in the past and. You have this lovely metaphor um, to kind of distill this when you say that you've preferred the stained glass window to the grand narrative fresco that would have produced only the illusion of an authoritative discourse. And this use of the metaphor stained glass, of course, is, is very effective in that it immediately brings to mind kind of the European high middle ages and, and orients maybe Eurocentric audience who's picked up the book to have perhaps that image, but it's also much more than that because it, you explicitly state in the beginning of this book that you are, you are rejecting an implicit pressure in academic publishing to present the authoritative discourse, the one that is utterly complete. And I wondered if, if this was not only something that the, the research process and the writing process brought you to, but also a way of unlearning or thinking about the practice of history that you personally had to reckon with. Yeah, yes, you, yes, absolutely. I like this metaphor, you know, of the, of the stained glass. Or, yeah, and um, because it... Uh, not because uh, <laughs> it attracts the attention, you know, to the cathedrals or whatever. It's not. It's not what I am interested in. What I like is that a, a stained glass is a, is made of a number of fragments, and uh, and that are pasted together by by lead, you know. And and you do not pretend that the pieces of glass fit together. And on the contrary, you make the lead all the more apparent. And that's what I want to do in this, that's what I wanted to do in this book. I mean, the story we can tell is a story made of fragments. And um, instead of lying to the reader by, by drawing a continuous narrative whereby you would just paste the fragment as if it was the original image. By, by lying about the fact that they are fragments. Uh, instead of this, I want, to, <laughs> I want to have these thick pieces of lead, you know, that 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 are both both the, the that, that do not hide the fact that these are fragments and at the same time that connect the fragments with, um, uh, with one another. So what I like is the joint, you know, between this uh, between this um, uh, fragment of um, uh, of um, uh, of glasses, and um, and by pasting together these fragments, um, uh, you create 
an image, which is an imperfect um, uh, image, and where the joint is as important as the pieces of, um, uh, of glass. Why is it so important to show that the lead joint uh, is there? Uh, because, <laughs> because, because the way how you historian reconstruct the past is just one possibility. There are other possibilities, and you can, and based on on these fragments, you can tell many different stories. And the many different stories you can tell to the reader is part of is part of the story. And um, if I were to tell the story in a grand narrative way, that would be probably more satisfying to some reader, but that would also be lying. Lying because it is not true that we can, that we, that we, that we, that we must tell the story that one way, you know? And let me give you an example. The kingdom of Ghana, okay? Uh, the ancient kingdom of Ghana, um, which is not modern Ghana, you know, and uh, which is the, the medieval kingdom of Ghana was in the south of today's Mauritania. We have two um, major fragments. One is provided by an Andalusian uh, Arab uh, writer, Al-Bakri, in the mid-11th century, and one is provided a century later by the famous Arab cartographer, Al-Idrisi. Okay. These are the two main windows, and other, we have other tiny fragments, but these are the two, um, uh, the two major fragments that, that, um, that we have, a century apart. Okay, nothing before, nothing in the middle, almost nothing after. Okay. And the problem is that these two pieces do not reconcile well. It does not reconcile well at all. Okay. And why? Because the first one says, that um, uh, the kingdom of Ghana is situated in a plain, okay, and um, uh, and that the um, and that the he gives the name of the plain, okay, so that fits well with an archaeological site that we know in South Mauritania, in what is today in the, in the desert, etc. He said that the kingdom is pagan, okay, and then a century later, um, uh, Idrisi goes on to say that the kingdom of Ghana is Muslim. So, okay, so we understand that something like a conversion occurred in the meantime. Okay, we don't have the detail because we don't have a continuous narration, but we guess that, um, a dynasty, that there was a dynastic change or maybe just a conversion of the dynasty, and that's, that's okay. But then he goes on and he says that a river passed in the middle of the city. But, you know, there is no way that there was a river in the region that, there was, that, that, that was described by Al-Bakri a century earlier. There is no way. So not only did something happen, a dynastic change or a conversion of the dynasty, but, but what? But did, um, did, did the capital move a few hundred kilometers toward the river? But that's a major change. You know? and, um, and, if, and what if one of the two writers was just wrong? No, what if Al Idrisi was just confusing the kingdom of Ghana with some with, with, with another one? Or what if Al Bakri was wrong? So basically, we cannot be sure that they are talking of the same thing, you know, of the same kingdom. If everything else has changed, you know, the religion, the place, the city, and the dynasty, I mean, what is left? <laughs> what is left of the kingdom of, um, of Ghana? So we can make the hypothesis that one of them is wrong, but which one should we, should, 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 should we, should we, should we preserve? You know? And we can make also the hypothesis that the two are right, you know? but in that case, we should decide that there is something wrong in the very heart of the description of one or another. So we can, the only thing we can make is choose the hypothesis that we want that we want to favor, but we cannot not tell it to the reader. Okay, and the the so what I think I must do as a historian is just is just list the um, list the problems and um, 
and create a landscape of problems and give to the reader the, the elements in my position, you know, to, to think about the problems that the Kingdom of Ghana is. And that's what I'm doing in a number of chapters in this, um, uh, in this book. I cannot choose, and, uh, and I, I, I still cannot choose now. I have different hypotheses. I, could just, I can just you know, expose these different hypotheses. And, um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and so that's why this fragmentary documentary regime of African history, I have, no, I, I have no choice but to narrate it in a fragmentary and, uh, way. Hence the, the metaphor of the uh, stained glass. So where does oral tradition come in to this, this source landscape? That's a very good question. Uh, that's a very good and very um, uh, complex um, uh, question. Uh, I am a big fan of uh, oral tradition. It's, but at the same time, I have to recognize that there is also in the public uh, uh, an, altern an alternance of naivete or distrust about oral tradition in, um, in Africa. Many people, I mean, most people don't know what oral tradition is or confuse oral tradition with just, you know, oral information or etc. And uh, oral tradition are a real thing and they are a real historical tool to reconstruct the past. But uh, what I think is that they are very useful to reconstruct things that happened during the last two or three or four centuries. They can be, they must be used in a critical way like any other um, uh, uh, historical, historical material, like you no know, archaeology or like a written source. There is no problem. These oral traditions are a real historical source. But they cannot be used to reconstruct things that happened, you know, a thousand years ago. Uh, it has, it's, it's, it's useless to reconstruct things that happened a thousand years ago. It cannot go that far back. And all researchers, all historians who have worked on oral tradition show that there is a kind of ceiling, uh, you know, around the 16th or 17th century. And that, and that oral tradition uh, 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 cannot go through this, this, um, this, um, this, this ceiling. So oh, <laughs> you can tell me, okay, but what about uh, the epic of Sunjata, Sunjata in 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 the Malinke and the, the world in 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 West Africa? Yes, I mean this is an epic, and uh, this is an epic that that is extremely interesting that narrates the creation of the of the of the empire of Mali. An event that most historians agree took place around the 13th century, and uh, but it is an epic, and um, and although it encapsulates you know big events, and that really took place, and a historical figure like Sunjata that took that that did exist. What else is true in this epic? You know? And um, and I'm obliged to say, not much. And uh, that would be, you know, it is it is as difficult to reconstruct the the, the events of the of the of the imp, of the creation of the empire of Mali based on the epic of Sujata as it is to uh, reconstruct um, uh, um, the Carolingian uh, the, the creation of the Carolingian empire. Um, uh, in the you know in the eighth century, based on twelfth or thirteenth century chanson de geste 
um, uh, in, um, uh, in, uh, in French. I mean, you, cannot, you cannot reconstruct uh, uh, things that belong to, 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 to such a distant past based on oral tradition. That's why, uh, that's why in my Golden Rhinoceros, oral tradition takes almost no, um, takes no, uh, have, have no place. So we're talking about this book, the African Middle Ages, the seventh century to the 15th century, roughly. And you, you chose to use this term Middle Ages. And you talk a little bit about the choice of Middle Ages with regard to something like medieval or a term like pre-colonial. Can you reason through this decision with us? Well, I, I think that talking about pre-colonial history uh, is, a, is a problem uh, because it, it, it put the emphasis on the on, on the period that would on the period that would come later, you know, the the the, the colonial period, and um, and I think there is a kind of you know there would be a kind of theolo theological you know reasoning in 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 calling everything that took place before by the name of what took place later. And uh, I don't like this expression of pre-colonial history, and, um, and 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 I never use it actually. So I like the I like the idea of speaking of ancient African history, and um, and what I personally call ancient is before there were plenty of written sources and uh, and uh, because i think that the characteristics of ancient african history is pre precisely this lack of written sources and the specific challenge that it poses to to, to paste together you know um, heterogeneous pieces of glass and uh, that's the specific challenge that makes African history so interesting in my view, and that's what that's what I called ancient African history. But now, within this uh, indistinctive <laughs> uh, um, uh, ancient African history, I think uh, there is a medieval period, which corresponds more or less to what we call um, the Middle Ages in European history, or what is called the medieval or classical period in the Islamic history, and uh, and 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 it's not illegitimate to 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 call this period of African history medieval, and uh, I think that's perfectly fine. And uh, and and because um, because these societies, many societies in Africa, uh, were connected with other. Uh, medieval societies in the rest of the in the rest of the world, and um, and so why not calling um, these uh, these this this connection between different provinces of the of the world the Middle Ages, and this is what I do. <laughs> I'm not alone to do this. You know, I mean, there is a there is a current of thought today that uh, that uh, that that globalized the Middle Ages, and um, uh, and that tends to think of the of the Middle Ages as a global process, etc. There are many discussions about it, discussions about it, and um, and, and and there is this you know this this global turn in the in the in the um, in the in the in the medieval studies, and uh, all this is perfectly relevant. All this. Is absolutely fascinating, and I think that, uh, and I think yes, Africa has something to say, and uh, and um, to, uh, and because not only it is a, it is obvious that African societies participated in um, um, uh, this process, but also because it's very interesting to rethink the Middle Ages, and uh, and thanks to uh, what Africa uh, 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 bring, you know, into the into the into this uh, into this um, 
this new uh, 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 paradigm. It obliged to rethink, you know, what the what the what the global uh, what globalization was and, uh, in the in the Middle Ages. It was obviously not the same sort of globalization as the modern one, um, but still, I mean, the it's 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 a it, it was a, a, a kind of globalization, and um, and it is all the more obvious when, when you when you look, uh, for instance, at the way how medieval cartographers such as Idrisi um, uh, represented the the ecumen, you know, and uh, it was a global ecumen, and uh, it and uh, it's also very interesting to to read um, Ibn Battuta. Uh, Ibn Battuta's uh, uh, narrative of his travel um, in the in in the uh, along the global ecumen, and including in different regions of Africa, and uh, in that uh, in that light, and um, and uh, I tend to think that precisely um, uh, uh, because. Cartographers like Idrisi were able to represent a global world, and precisely because travelers like Ibn Battuta or Jewish traveler Benjamin of Tudela or other um, uh, travelers were able to travel almost everywhere uh, at the cost of lying in many places to make us believe that they were everywhere. Is very revealing in the sense that they all knew that the ecumen was uh, travelable, you know, but they were not completely able to do it. In other words, products, goods traveled and they knew it. Gold, you know, went from Zimbabwe to Europe, and slaves went from um, you know, Kenya to China, and uh, Carnelian went from uh, India to Ethiopia, and so things traveled, but people could not really. They could just feel, you know, they could just experience the the completedness of the world, but they could not completely um, uh, um, do it, and. And, and this uh, con contradictory feeling about the completeness of the of the ecumen is, I think, a characteristic of the the sort of globalization that the that the Middle Ages was. In other words, uh, Middle Ages for me is not a, is is as much a geography as a time period, and it is within this geography and time period that I try to um, to, uh, to 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 draw the portrait of Africa as a as a partner of other provinces of the of the medieval world. So let's have maybe a more concrete example for our listeners, because the book, as we've said, ranges quite far afield all over the continent, and it's divided into these 34 kind of vignettes. And it's really a book that is um, exceptional for teaching, because these vignettes are, are short, some are three, four pages, some are six, seven, eight, a little longer, but they're each accompanied with just these beautiful illustrations. And then the citations and, and footnotes and all of that are kind of taken out and put in a short bibliographic essay at the end. So you can really focus on this exploratory process that, that you take us on. And I, I thought maybe we could linger for a second on chapter 23, which is called The Work of Angels. And it's about Lalibela, which is this um, archaeological complex in the Ethiopian highlands. And, and if you're listening and you've never seen the Church of St. George at Lalibela, Google it so that you see what this magnificent uh, monument looks like. And I wanted to read 
the par a paragraph that describes it a little bit to give a sense of the lyrical quality of the language you have in this book. You say on page 155, the church of Georgis is not strictly speaking a building since it was not constructed from pieces of stone or wood placed on top of one another. It has been hewn both inside and out, carved and hollowed out from the living rock. It displays no more joints than the tunic of Christ does seems. Great effort was expended to make the work of man invisible to better celebrate the work of God. Such a beautiful paragraph. <laughs> Thank you, Elisa. So, so tell us about, about the work of angels and the, the question at the heart of this complex. Uh, the, what I wanted to convey you know, in this chapter is, um, is not only that this site is wonderful and, um, and, and deserve to be visited once in, in one's life. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's an exceptional um, uh, site, um, a complex of a dozen churches that are literally sculpted in the into the um, into the into the rock, and um, but at the same time it's also exceptional because of the challenge that it posed to uh, historian. What do we do with the site which is sculpted? And not everybody understands this. You know, I've, I've I've worked extensively in La Libella with other people, and we have sometimes tourists, okay, from Ethiopia or from from Western countries or from Ethiopians living in other countries. Okay, so we have many sort of tourists that that ask questions, and um, and so um, uh, what people don't understand is how challenging it is to work on this site because because it is so uncommon to have a site which is entirely sculpted. Think of the difference between this and a real archaeological site. An archaeological site is made of deposits, layers. Okay, so basically the ruins of the 13th, of the 12th or 13th century site are below our feet. Okay, and then a number of layers that belong to the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Okay, have 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 been added to the to to the to the to the to the to the soil, and uh, and we are and we are working on it. And with so, so, so we just have to excavate and to go through these different layers that, have, that are accumulated and we can uh, uncover uh, the, the, the past. But it doesn't work with uh, a complex that has been entirely excavated because of sculpted, because the former layers has been removed by the very work of sculpting it. And so everything that was interesting in that in everything that could doc, that could help us document the the people who made it has been removed by these people. Okay, in the very process of creating this these monuments and and uh, and, and this complex. So what can we say about it. Not much. And so we are trapped by the discourse that we have created in the past around, around this side. For instance, that it was created by angels in just a few days. Or any other kind of hypothesis like this, whether it, it, it is um, uh, um, uh, um, created by the local people or by the religious people or by scholars and um, how can we find our own way of um, uh, of reinterpreting the past how can we and where can we find new sort of evidence how can we do with this and that's that's what I explain in this uh, chapter about uh, about La Libella, that we had to devise a kind of new vertical archaeology based on based on evidence that can still be observed, not beneath our feet, but above our heads. 
<laughs> and and, um, uh, and uh, I cannot tell more. But you know, I give an ex I give several examples in this uh, in this um, uh, in this chapter. Um, uh, we had to invent an, a methodology adapted to this to this size, and it worked. And it uh, and uh, and instead and now instead of uh, being prisoner of past narratives in this, and and instead of believing that it was created all of a sudden uh, in the 13th century, uh, now we know that this site was created and developed over several centuries. That it started before the 13th century, and that it continued to be transformed several centuries after um, the, the 13th century. So it's a, it's a much more complex representation, and, but also a much more interesting representation of the, uh, of the, of the past. And uh, you can, if, I, if, I, if I also can give you um, uh, uh, news about, about Sigil Massa, I've been I've been working, and other researchers have been working at, at, at uh, Lalibela, sorry, in, uh, in Ethiopia, uh, during the uh, during the, the recent years after the book was uh, was completed. And now we've discovered um, um, a new in Lalibela, a new place that belonged to the 12th century, and uh, there was a you know there is a in Lalibela a, a huge hill which is actually a heap of uh, spoils. Coming from the very sculpting of the churches in the in the 13th century, and so we hypothesized at some point that uh, this hill could not be a natural hill; that it was that it was a, that it was a, 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 an artificial mound. And if it was so, and if it was created in the 13th century, that meant that there was something below, and we were right actually. So that we have, we had now a, 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 a com an entire um, pre-Christian. Um, uh, uh, Complex uh, that belongs to the 12th century, and that uh, that that is currently being um, excavated, and uh, and that will eventually multiply the the the, the surface uh, of the of the of the site of um, La Libella and the potential for 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 further you know visit touristic visit of the of this wonderful uh, site. Well, that's just wonderful and exciting news, which we all need right now. So this is very encouraging, the powers of research uh, showing us new ways forward. So as we kind of conclude, I wondered if you could tell us about the golden rhinoceros, the title of the book, and one of the chapters of the book, yeah. why this object, why this title, and what is this golden rhinoceros? Well, I, what I, the reason why I chose this um, this title, which, as you said, is uh, just the title of one of the chapters, is because it, you know, it it uh, it captures, I think, the the very idea of the connection of Africa with the rest of the world. I mean, the rhinoceros being um, an African animal and gold being the one of the most um, famous and valuable gold that circulated between Africa and the rest of the world. I mean, gold was basically the reason why Africa was known in the Middle Ages in the rest of the, in the, rest of the world. Think, for instance, of the Catalan uh, Atlas, this famous map that was produced by Jewish cartographers in the 14th century in the Balearic Island. It represents King Musa of Mali with a huge uh, gold um, uh, uh, ball, uh, 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 orb in his hand. I mean, he was famous for exporting gold and uh, to, to toward the Islamic world and toward the and toward the rest of the of the of the world. So Africa was famous for gold, and um, and so by associating gold and rhinoceros, I mean, it, I think this title captures you know, the, the, the 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 the. The very connection between Africa and the rest of the world in the in the Middle Ages. Now, what I mean, this this golden rhinoceros comes, it it really exists, and it comes from um, a site 
in today's South Africa, uh, at the site of Mapungubwe, which is a hill that overlooks the um, Limpopo River, which, which draws the border between South Africa and Zimbabwe. And on the top of this hill was discovered in the 1930s by white settlers uh, a hoard of, um, of gold. This, with these rhinoceros and with a number of other things, etc. Basically, all this was, was found in graves. And it was looted by these people. And then after a few days, one of the looters um, uh, understood that it was wrong and wrote to his former history professors in Pretoria, who was Leo Fouché. And, um, and Leo Fouché understood very quickly that it was a major discovery. And then from then, the site has been excavated for decades. And now it's uh, on the list of the World Heritage Site by the UNESCO. What is interesting is that we have a site at Mapungubwe which is very far from everything else we know. Okay? It's very far from the site of the Swahili coast, etc. Obviously, the people that were buried there in the 12th century were not Muslim, were not Christians. Okay? Uh, they were buried, if only because they were buried with their riches, you know, gold, etc., which is generally not the case for Christians and Muslims. But still, they were connected with um, the rest of the world through the Islamic, through the Swahili merchants and through the Islamic uh, merchants. How do we know this? Because in the graves, on top of the, uh, besides the, the golden rhinoceros and other uh, golden objects, there were imports, such as a shard of Celadon ceramics that was produced in China or Indo-Pacific beads by the thousands, etc., etc. So these people were well connected. In a way, they were at the end of the chain, the long chain of uh, inter of articulation and interconnection between Africa and the rest of the of the world. So, so that's a that's a very good example of how an archaeological site can be an illustration of. Uh, of a, of a, of a, of a connected and uh, of a connected place, but it's also very interesting. This site is also very interesting because um, because of the history of how we know what we know, and uh, that uh, this site was looted is a very common feature in many places in Africa, and um, and very often we historians and we archaeologists we have to deal with this. I mean, we have to deal with often uh, objects. And so our job is first to start trying to reconstruct the way how this object arrived to us. You know? And many among historians of Africa work sometimes from uh, objects that are in museums. And objects in museums are uh, often um, uh, objects which have been looted at some point in the past. And, uh, it's, and we have to work with it. It is also one of the conditions under which we work. And, but also the fact that the looters were white settlers. It also put the emphasis on the fact that there was a colonial period, and um, whereby um, uh, um, uh, uh, white people had a privileged access to uh, archaeological resources, symbolic resources, looting of the past, and uh, and and which at the side effect of depriving local people of their own past and heritage. And all this is also, you know, all this colonial context is also part of uh, how we deal with the, with the history of, um, of ancient um, uh, Africa. And we cannot, uh, we cannot forget it. We cannot uh, obliterate part of this, 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 uh, this, this reality. And, um, I cannot, no, I, I cannot work uh, at an archaeological site like, uh, like Mapungubwe without uh, acknowledging that this site was looted by white people 80 years ago. And, um, and, and because, just because this, I mean, this, golden, this golden rhinoceros arrived to us both 
thanks to this looting and despite this looting and this contradictory situation, this paradoxical situation is a, is a, is a, is in itself a metaphor of what it is to work on on the past of uh, African societies. Xavier, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this wonderful book. Thank you very much, Elisa.